Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill, and this is the second episode of the Monthly Investment Roundtable. This podcast brings together various investment professionals here at Diamond Hill to discuss relevant and timely topics spanning domestic, international, and fixed income markets. On today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Peel, Hirsch Achara, and Blake Haxton. Chris Peel has been with Diamond Hill since 2017, works as a research analyst for the international team. Chris attended the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and received his master's degree from the University of Wisconsin. Hirsch Acharya is a research analyst covering industrials and utilities, has been with Diamond Hill since 2013. Hirsch graduated from the University of Mumbai and received his MBA from Fordham University. Blake Haxton is a research analyst at Diamond Hill covering transportation as well as oil and gas and has been with the firm since 2016. Blake is a graduate of the Ohio State University, earning both his bachelor's degree and a law degree from OSU. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that just this past summer, Blake won the silver medal at the Tokyo Paralympic Games in the men's VAA single 200-meter VL2 event, which, in layman's terms, is a single-man outrigger canoe sprint. The team at Diamond Hill cannot be prouder of Blake. Blake, Chris, and Hirsch are joining me today on the podcast to discuss something that has been on everyone's mind over the past several months, inflation. The goal is to have an open discussion about the impacts of inflation on their industries, as well as the overall impact of the continued stress on the global supply chain. We continue to work through the pandemic with some of us in the office and some of us at home. So I ask for your forgiveness for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy I hope you enjoy this episode of the Diamond Hill Investment Round. Gentlemen, I want to welcome you to the Investment Roundtable, an opportunity for listeners to hear from different members of the firm on a common topic. Our first episode covered how the consumers dealt with the massive disruptions brought about by the COVID pandemic and subsequent reopening. Today, we'll be discussing inflation and supply chain issues, and I'm interested in getting your thoughts on how inflation, transitory or otherwise, has impacted your areas of coverage and markets in general. One of the things that we continually hear about or are shown examples of via images of container ships waiting outside various ports is the supply chain disruption that has occurred and the impact on pricing. If each of you could take some time and discuss how the breakdown in the supply chain has impacted your areas of coverage, I think that'll give us a great start to the discussion. Blake, why don't you go first, and then we'll hear from Harsh and Chris. Sure, Doug. Well, hey, thanks for having me. Always glad to, glad to be, be here with you guys. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the news report really kind of says it all. The supply chain, especially the international supply chain, anything that moves via port, uh, everything from bulk commodities to uh, consumer packaged goods that go through the large, uh, large supply chain channels, uh, everything is snarled. My view is I think that's more of a short-term phenomenon than a long-term phenomenon. Um, I think a lot has been made of maybe there's a geopolitical risk, there's regulatory risk, but historically, I think if you take the industries and break them down sort of, uh, let's say transportation mode by mode, be it rail, be it water, be it truck, uh, there are certainly some short-run headwinds, no question, labor, uh, capacity type things, but I think we're already seeing some efforts to alleviate that. So in the long run, I think the supply chain will will continue to run pretty hot. I think there's going to be a lot of volume. I don't know if that is transitory. I think the 
The delays that we're seeing with it, though, I think will will probably take a few quarters at the very least to work out. But in the long run, I'm more optimistic that will be uh, we'll be able to invest and grow into that. Yeah, I can I can go next. Uh, thanks, Doug. Yeah, for having me on the, back on the podcast. Um, one of the things in the uh, consumer and and tech space, which is where I've been spending uh, most of my time lately, is I mean, I think one of the biggest things is, you know, we've seen this for years now that companies have been investing towards, you know, a global supply chain. And really, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the cost savings. But for decades, you know, companies have been moving in a direction to, you know, outsource pieces of the supply, global supply chain and parts of their process. Um, And then, you know, here we are fast forward a a few years to today. And everything's so connected and we can see how that, you know, could work well, a global and interconnected supply chain works really well when things are good. But then, you know, in a, in a time of disruption like today, it only takes, you know, one piece of that supply chain to really break down and cause, you know, inflationary costs across, you know, the global system. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of that today. Um, and it, you know, the inflation kind of, it, it, it tends to move just past the, the part itself, you know, the, the specific piece of the supply chain that's, that shut down itself. Um, and, you know, I can give a quick example of that is one of the companies we own in the international portfolio is called Asa Abloy. And this is a innovative designer and manufacturer of locks um, and, and door opening solutions across both the commercial and residential spaces. Um, across the globe, but I know I'm sure we've all read about the uh, you know the semiconductor um, shortage and the issues that that has caused in the auto sector. That's also one of the biggest input costs for us employ on the digital lock side. So, you know, just as an example, you know, in in addition to you know the delays from not being able to receive semiconductors to be able to you know manufacture their door locks, on top of that, Asa is you know flying in these parts themselves. So you can see how the distribution costs of that um, and then the, you know, increased demand for fuel, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Um, But so, you know, that also lends itself to pressure on on those two. And then finally, on top of that, lead times have been, you know, shrunk down from six months during normal times to now about six weeks. So by the time ASA does, in fact, receive the part, it's last minute. So they've got to run overtime and, you know, that can be really expensive on the labor front, um, you know, to try to get and, and meet demand and, and keep their process on time. So you can see how just, you know, one piece of the supply chain breaking down with semiconductors can kind of lead to an inflationary cost environment across, you know, the entire operation. And so I think we're starting to see a little bit of that um, right now. And, and again, I think that's just from years and years of you know, investing towards a global connected supply chain. But, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, we saw, you know, some companies move away from that a little bit, um, especially some that were in in the UK during Brexit. Um, and then also with the China-US trade wars, you've seen some companies start to kind of pull back from that, uh, even though the costs are a little bit more expensive to kind of take more control of your supply chain. Um, some Some companies are starting to realize that, you know, there's a lot of value in having that control at the same time. So we don't, you know, you don't end up getting into a, uh, a situation like, like we're currently facing. So it, you know, it's interesting. We'll see how many uh, companies kind of move in, in this direction as we head out of this pandemic, but um, it's certainly a, a, a change that we've, we've seen on the consumer and tech side recently. So thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, uh, for diversified industrials, as the sector kind of suggests, 
um, all the end markets across the companies that we own are pretty different. And uh, the, the impact of supply chain disruption and even inflation is felt uh, quite differently across our holdings. Um, so I was, I was a little bit surprised by the dispersion that I saw in this quarter and some of the management commentary that I got. Um, so underlying theme is resins, semiconductors, electronics, uh, not just in terms of uh, you know, cost pressures, but also in terms of being able, able to obtain those and then kind of put them through the production process. And companies have different operating models and they try to uh, attack the problem a little bit differently. Uh, some companies have a little bit of a time lag in their ability or even willingness uh, to some degree to pass these costs on on a more contemporaneous basis. Whereas, uh, for example, Parker Hennepin, a stock that we've owned for a very long time, for years and years, they have consistently kind of, you know, messaged that they have the system where they can pass on the costs on an almost real-time basis onto their customers. And it was so good to see that come through when a lot of the companies were struggling during the quarter and they posted 35% incremental margins, revenue growth was like, you know, in the high teens and everything just panned out the way the management had been kind of saying for years and years. So uh, it was good to see that come through. Uh, some of the better managed companies had, had issues like Honeywell had its own issues, but nothing that seemed like insurmountable or something that would you know, upset or significantly uh, change our estimate of intrinsic value. And I would echo a lot of what Blake and Chris mentioned. I think so these issues kind of peak in the fourth quarter and then they begin to abate uh, starting Q1 of 2022. Now, to what degree that abates would depend on a lot of other uh, extraneous factors that I don't have a strong view on, but hopefully, uh, these issues will will begin to abate starting uh, a Q1 of 2022. So Blake, uh, revenue for energy stocks is naturally tied to energy prices. So as inflation rises, energy companies tend to benefit. Your coverage in this sector ranges from a company like Chevron with a $220 billion market cap to a company like, and I hope I'm saying this right, Civitas Resources with a $4.4 billion market cap. How does size play into a company's ability to manage through these periods of significant inflation? Sure, sure. Great question. And so it's interesting. This is this relationship between inflation, let's say top line inflation, like an energy company might get for selling a given hydrocarbon product and uh, overall inflation that they might have to deal with on the cost side. Uh, that relationship is probably a little more tenuous than it's been in the past because so much of the, the oil and gas industry, especially in the United States, has gone to uh, you know, horizontal development or fracking or non-conventional uh, development, which means these wells decline a lot faster, which means you have to invest a lot quicker and the cycle of investment uh, accelerates. So uh, I think we probably see a little bit less of a cushion on that inflationary side than maybe we've seen in the past, just because you know, if you've you invested for a 20-year project and you've already got the capital spent on the ground, then inflation is kind of your friend. If you have to on, you know, invest in that project in an ongoing basis, maybe it's not as much. So maybe not as tenuous, but with that as background, I think the size, there's certainly a, a cutoff where if you can't deal with your suppliers in a consistent way, and by that I mean, can you, you know, you'll hear things in the oil patch where people say, well, can we keep one rig running? 
can we keep one frat crew working? Can they sign contracts with service providers that the service providers interested in saying, hey, we can keep our capital employed, we can keep our workers you know, happy. If you were to reach that size where you can have a sort of a steady state service level, then that's really where the, the value comes in. Really small providers uh, that maybe can't get over that, uh, that, that hurdle rate for, for a lot of, uh, on, the, on the supply side, then they're gonna be at a real disadvantage. But all the companies we own, I think have, have gotten over that hurdle where they can get advantageous pricing. And the, the interesting thing for the last couple of years is even as oil prices have come back and been very strong, we've seen a lot of discipline on the investment side. So uh, from the EMPs themselves, I should say the exploration and production companies. So the services businesses, the pure services businesses, the, the Slumbergers, the Halliburtons and all their smaller competitors, they don't have the kind of uh, the recovery, let's say, that the actual oil producers are having right now. So there's still a real gap there. So earnings should continue to be pretty strong for oil and gas companies as long as the uh, you know, commodity prices stay strong. So to answer your question at a certain size, I think that they, they won't have a problem managing through that. I think it sort of levels the playing field. Um, and certainly everything we want to be involved with is above that. But there's a lot, there's a lot left to be seen. I don't mean to, to act like this is a done deal. Um, development is, again, uh, ongoing and really volatile. So we'll have to keep an eye on it, but that's that's kind of how I see the label in right now. Harsh, I'll, I'll pose the same question to you. Does size in gas or electric utilities impact a company's ability to manage through periods of volatility and pricing? Yeah, so electric and gas utilities are very different from the rest of the kind of uh, you know business sector mainly because these are regulated monopolies and the state regulators and even the federal regulators aim to kind of allow these companies to earn a fair return on some of the infrastructure investments that they do and put capital to work. So size really doesn't have uh, much to do with how quickly or how much they can uh, kind of pass through uh, in terms of inflation onto the customers, but it's the, it's the state regulations and the federal regulations that come into the picture. And for the most part, um, these companies are able to, let's say, true up some of the input cost inflation, for example, cost of purchasing natural gas that went up like two eggs during uh, cold waves uh, electricity price, prices that have spiked because natural gas uh, has spiked. So uh, they can true those up uh, at least annually, if not on a monthly basis. And they're kind of made whole uh, by the year end, so long as their actions have been prudent. So uh, yeah, size has nothing to do with that. And we are very kind of focused on uh, which regulatory regimes are most con constructive for, for uh, regulated companies. And we try to kind of look for investments in those, those kind of uh, jurisdictions. So Chris, we're gonna take a different approach for your question on inflation. We're gonna focus on areas like food packaging, food services, and beverages. We're already seeing an impact domestically with higher food prices showing up at the grocery store on a weekly basis. So first, what kind of impact is inflation having on the international front in these areas of the market? And second, what are your expectations for the coming months and into the new year? Yeah, I'd say it's uh, on the international side, it's pretty similar to what we're seeing you know, in the US. Um, you know, Input cost inflation is, uh, is a headwind that a lot of companies are facing. 
Um, but it's interesting, you know, each, each company and each competitor is kind of impacted differently. So, you know, this kind of goes back to what some of what Hirsch and what Blake were talking about earlier is that, you know, in a in grocery retail, when you think about it, it's really a commodity-based business, right? I mean, the retailers are all pretty much selling the same stuff. So scale becomes, you know, a big advantage, right? If you're the biggest uh, retailer, you can purchase more from your suppliers, which means you get a purchase discount. So you can pass that on to your customers in terms of better prices. And so, you know, if, if you're, if you're a scale player, you know, that inflation is still coming through and infect and impacting, you know, the, your suppliers, which are your CPG companies. So they're passing their price on to the retailers and then the retailers are then, you know, in a position to either pass that on to consumers or maybe try to take a more competitive position and maybe absorb some of that in the near term to try to take market share. So, you know, one of the one of the companies that we own in the international portfolio is Tesco, which is the largest UK grocery retailer. Um, so they've got a significant scale advantage in, in the UK, which is their main market. And so that's kind of what they're doing right now is, you know, they're, they're looking at this opportunity of rising prices and saying, you know, hey, this is going to impact our entire industry, but we've got a scale advantage. So our suppliers aren't passing on price to the extent um, to, to us that they are to the competitors. And so, you know, they're, they're taking this opportunity to kind of absorb a little bit of that. So when you're, when you walk into the store as a consumer, you know, you're not really feeling too much inflation. It's still there, but maybe, you know, not to the extent of, of some of the competitors. So, you know, it's, it's really a strong competitive position to be in um, as the at scale player, you know, to kind of have that type of flexibility to really, you know, to, to absorb that cost and take market share if, if need be, you know, some of the other competitors, like I said, are not in as strong of a position. And so they're just having to pass that on because they're not being able to match, you know, the prices that, that, that Tesco is often is offering. So, um, you know, it's, it's really a unique situation. And, and like I said, companies of different size and different competitive positions are, are being impacted differently, but, um, you know, generally speaking, it's, it is an inflationary environment. And, you know, I think, looking out as far as we can see into next year into 2022 it seems like you know that inflationary pressure is still going to be there you know like i said as far as you can see into next year um so it'll just take time i think you know prices do it like industries have a good good handle on um you know they manage cost cycles before they have a good handle on kind of resetting prices over time it just it, you know it's just a matter of uh you know getting there i guess um like i said this this spike and and this sort of inflation round on the raw material side has been kind of quick and sharp. And so that's kind of set off a, a mismatch between price and cost in the near term. But, you know, over time, companies tend to, uh, you know, adjust prices accordingly and, and the industry tends to normal out over time. So this next question is going to be for all three of you. Um, and taking advantage of the fact that we're in the process of wrapping up earnings season. So I'm very interested to hear from you guys what the consensus has been on the earnings call regarding the disruption to supply chain and pricing issues. And we've already talked about, you know, how the current supply chain situation is impacting companies that you cover. Now I'm interested in hearing how CEOs, CFOs, and others have been discussing the situation and the potential resolution on their calls. So Hirsch, let's start with you, uh, and then we'll go to Blake and then to Chris. Yeah, so uh, in terms of uh, consensus, uh, there are, you know, a few points that, you know, the management teams have mentioned um, on the conference calls. I think the first one that comes to mind is dual sourcing. 
for the most part, uh, you know, if, if your supplier is top tier, um, a good operator, you want those suppliers to supply uh, as much as they can so you can reap some of the uh, operational efficiencies that they can put into the volumes and you can get a better price. But I think what they're trying to do now is trying to thread the needle and say, can we reduce our uh, procurement from say 100% of a certain portion to 75? We still uh, reap a lot of benefits of operating leverage that the supply can pass us uh, onto. And then we move, met, uh, let's say 25% to somebody else. So there's a little bit of price competition as well. And we have a little bit of, uh, you know, um, resiliency against uh, a supply shock of sorts. Uh, second would be just uh, sharing some of the insights, let's say a tier one supplier like Parker Anafin or uh, Honeywell might have, uh, you know, some of the insights that they, they might have uh, in dealing with Boeing and kind of sharing those plans with the tier two and tier three suppliers saying, hey, here are their amp up plants and uh, given its long lead time, uh, you know, these are some of the schedules that we would expect from you guys, just to give them like a longer lead time to react and not be caught unaware, sort of. Um, and then just ability to kind of pass through cost increases. Um, I think bottom line is, uh, so long as companies are providing value-added products and services that are mission critical, uh, for end applications. And so long as I think consumer spending remains robust, my sense is these companies should be able to recoup some of the lost margins that we might see uh, later this year or have already seen in the third quarter. Uh, they should be able to recoup that over time, albeit with like, uh, you know, varying degrees of lag, depending on how their operations are set up, what their specific end market exposures are. But that's, that's my working theory. Thanks. I mean, I'm I'm gonna echo a lot of what uh, what Hirsch just said. I guess from from my coverage, I would I would put my uh, what I've heard from management teams in two major buckets. There, and we could divide it up basically by business uh, sort of business model. On the commodity production side, let's call that base metal miners, oil and gas producers, really because they're price takers anyway, and they're gonna get the little price or the metal price they're gonna get. They are really focused on managing uh, managing cost and managing the input side. Um, I think even then, a lot of those inputs are commodity type inputs. So maybe that's not the thing you can take advantage of, but that's the thing that's in their control to a large extent. I think that's where the focus is going to be uh, because I think we're still fairly early days in the recovery here and getting back to what normalized is. And I think there's a very live ongoing discussion around what normalized actually looks like going forward for demand for base metals, demand for oil and gas, things like that that there's a lot of hesitancy around how much investment we really want to be engaging in right now. We don't want to get right back into another cycle, which a lot of these businesses have been in for a while. So that's one thing we're hearing from the, the commodity producers. On the more differentiated business model side, maybe the logistics providers, some of the shippers, the focus is we need to pass along some of these inflationary pressures via price. So let's say cost inputs like the energy price, for example, diesel being a big driver of uh, cost for a lot of these companies. Labor especially is going to be a big, uh, big issue as we go into the, uh, the hiring season. I mean, there's going to be over half a million seasonal hires for the, the large, um, large stores and large, uh, large e-commerce players that we're all familiar with. So we'll see how that goes. But the real focus for those management teams is how can we, is can, and then will we pass that, uh, that cost along through our consumers in the form of price. So that's kind of the, the two different stories I've heard this earnings season. 
Yeah, I would uh, really just echo what Blake and Hirsch have said. Um, I think on the consumer and tech side, uh, especially on the consumer side, uh, I think the general consensus for management teams is they're going to continue to pass on price and, and take price as much as they as they can, um, you know, looking into next year. Um, you know, I think I, I would also say that, you know, just some of the commentary seems to lend towards maybe the supply chain disruptions or more of a, you know, a near term issue that would, you know, coming out of the, the lockdown restrictions and, the, and just the demand that was met with the restrictions on the supply side that, you know, maybe some of that is more near term and that may, you know, lend itself to, to work itself out over, over the year 2022. Um, and of course, that'll help and, you know, know, kind of ease some of that inflationary pressure across, you know, the rest of the of the cost basis on the input side, um, you know, so that I think, you know, that could be a positive. But uh, as Hirsch and Blake mentioned, you know, um, you know, as companies have passed on price, you know, now going back, you know, a couple quarters, and then looking ahead into next year, a couple more quarters, you know, should we get some relief on the cost side, you know, whether it be the, from the supply chain opening back up or, you know, companies have also been kind of stockpiling inventories to try to get ahead of this inflationary period. So, you know, they're going to be plenty stocked full of inventories. And so there'll be a, there'll be enough supply on the side on, on that side. So, you know, should should some of that kind of ease going into next year, it seems like there could be in a, a good position as far as pricing goes to kind of get a little bit of a margin benefit on the way back down you know, should some of that inflationary pressure ease. Uh, but if not, then it sounds like, you know, the plan for at least the next 12 months or so is to kind of keep taking price up, try to catch up on the cost side, um, you know, and then hopefully things can kind of level out and, uh, and, and kind of go from there. But, you know, at least for the next few quarters and looking into, into next year, things, you know, until kind of those costs, on, things on the cost side start to normalize, you know, it could have a little bit more margin pressure on the consumer side for the next couple of quarters, you know, before things can kind of normal out. But um, that's kind of the, the view so far for management teams looking at. Blake, you cover quite a few airlines, including names like Alaska Air Group, Allegiant Travel, and while travel activity has recovered since the early dark days of the pandemic, we're still significantly behind pre-pandemic levels with the concern that business travel in particular has a long way to go. What's your outlook for the airline industry in general in the face of rising prices, staffing shortages, and the impact of energy inflation on the business model? Yeah, a lot, a lot there. So let me, try, let me try and break it apart. So first, totally agree. I think you're, you're on the right track with the demand recovery at a very high level. We've seen, especially domestic in the United States, leisure, family, uh, we call it visiting friends and relations traffic. You know that's that's really come back pretty strongly. I, I think that will that will stay with it. Um, of course, I think there's probably more to come. There's still clearly some people who aren't comfortable being in a plane yet. So uh, recovery is ongoing, but so far so good. Uh, the corporate the corporate side is really the question mark. I think everyone everyone kind of feels as do I that there will be a recovery. We don't think that you know everyone's going to be on Zoom forever, so to speak. But for some of these really business-focused airlines, think of the legacy carriers or Americans, Delta, Uniteds, uh, their margins really are contingent on keeping utilization every bit as high as it's been. And by that, I just mean the, amount, the, the percentage of the plane that's full and the ticket price they can usually get from a corporate traveler who maybe has to book a little closer to the departure date, things like that. So let's say we, we see a 75, 80, maybe even a 90% recovery in corporate travel that still makes a pretty big dent given the operating leverage the airlines have on their ultimate profitability. 
And that just remains to be seen. I don't know that anyone has a really strong view of that yet. My own view is I don't believe we're going to get back to quite where we were in 2019. Uh, the thing that may prove me wrong is that the market as a whole and the American business community as a whole is just so strong that aggregate demand kind of comes in and, and shores up th that business model. That's that's really what I'm kind of watching for to see if it happens. Now, you mentioned a whole lot, so I'm going to give you a whole lot here for a second. Uh, on the cost side, let's break it down into three different pieces. There's the CapEx side, which is really, really planes and maintenance. There's the labor side, and then there's the fuel side, the energy side. Uh, all three of those have independent drivers. We'll start with the planes. The aircraft market, especially for, for leased planes or the, the aircraft lending market, has really recovered very strongly. The, you, you, can, you can get a very low rate to borrow and, and fly a plane right now, especially in North America. Some international planes have not, uh, international carriers, excuse me, have not recovered yet. So right now, the cost of planes is still relatively low. Uh, it's been fairly easy to, to raise financing for a lot of these uh, aircraft. So we haven't seen too much uh, inflation on that side. Although as we look out five to 10 years and we look at global growth, we look at supply chain, you know, the, the overall supply chain for new aircraft, uh, I am more concerned that we're going to see more cost inflation uh, coming through there. But I do think it's a longer term issue. Um, this is something that, that Hirsch covering Duraside Industrials and I have, have gone back and forth about over the years. I really have gotten a lot of value at his, uh, his closer view there. Uh, on the labor side, this is a big issue. I think this might be a bigger issue, frankly, than the market appreciates, uh, particularly for pilots. Uh, we've been growing, even at uh, the rule of thumb, a lot of the carriers will tell you is that GDP plus two is sort of the amount uh, in percentage terms, is the amount of mileage they can grow per year and still maintain their ticket prices. Uh, that's a debatable number, but it's not bad for the back of the envelope. Uh, if you pencil that into the pilot population right now in North America, uh, we're gonna run out of pilots pretty quickly. We're talking the next few years. And pilots are not easy to train. It's a very expensive process. It's not open to typical student loan provisions. So it's very difficult. Uh, and you need 1,500 hours. That was a relatively recent rule. Now, coming out of 0809 and even the, the wars in the Middle East, you had a higher pipeline coming out of the military. So that, that helped. But for about the last decade, being a pilot has not been uh, all that attractive of a, uh, of a profession just how it's perceived as being cyclical and, and not that lucrative and, and on and on it goes. Well, that's that's really created this, this sort of a, a pothole here we've hit in the labor pool where most of the American pilot pool is in that you know 50 to 65 range and retirement's mandatory at 65. So to get 1500 hours in control of an aircraft to be able to fly commercial, which is the requirement, uh, we need to see some more training and we need to see it pretty quickly. Uh, this could be an, an ongoing issue for, for quite some time. Uh, and then lastly, on, on the energy side, I, I may have a little different view on how energy impacts airlines than, than you may typically hear. And just being that you know, they all have to buy fuel and they all have to pay effectively the same price. There's not a tremendous amount of advantage there. There is some nuance in which aircraft type you fly, how far you fly, things of that nature. So it's not irrelevant between carriers, but for the most part, it's a, it's a common input across the industry. So what we see is when prices are low, the industry tends to grow more. They tend to be profitable, at least for a while. Sometimes they grow too much and they give away the economics. But right now, we do see some aggregate demand uh, constriction, let's say. When you start trying to pass through prices at $70, $75, $80 a barrel and the impact that has on jet fuel, uh, the airline's overall ability to pass that cost through, uh, that, that, you know, those marginal economics do tend to deteriorate. Anything below... And again, this is debatable number, but anything below $60 a barrel and the flow through impact on jet fuel, I don't think it has too much of an impact on ticket prices that you're going to see 
uh, decremental demand. But from where we are now and certainly much higher, uh, I think that's going to start being a real concern for the industry. That's one thing we heard this earnings season that as, as oil started having a, uh, you know, an eight in front of it, that management teams are getting concerned again, that maybe we, maybe we got to be a little more judicious about where we put in capacity. Uh, the incremental flyer might decide to stay home, that kind of a thing. So anyway, I've given you a whole lot there. So overall, my, uh, my view is there's a lot going on. There are a lot of levers that can change. I think we're pretty comfortable with, with the airlines we own. We think they can manage through. We like the demand segments they're exposed to, and we think they've got uh, as good or better cost management as any of their competitors. So that's where we like being for the time being. Well, Blake, Hirsch, and Chris, I want to thank you guys for joining me today for what's been a, a very insightful conversation. I really appreciate your time and hope you guys will be back on the podcast again at a future date. Thanks, man. Thanks, Thanks. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.